Amen. So uh, we're going to open the word together, and uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. I wanted to go to a passage this church has never been to, so we decided to go to 1 Peter 4. Uh, if you've been here, you know that's not true. Let me just kind of set the stage from the beginning here. I want to I say uh, that what I have to say or what I think is not the least bit important at a juncture like this. Uh, our aim together is, my aim, our, I, I hope that our aim together is, it should be at least, to hear what God has to say in Scripture. I like to tell our church that if you want to hear the voice of God, then read the Bible out loud. Uh, and so that's kind of our, one of our mottos, that's one of our themes. Uh, these are God's Word, and as such, they are the primary means by which God grows and matures his people. I've got a quote here. Let's see if this is working. Nope. Okay, let's just forego the whole thing so it's not a distraction. Uh, there's the quote. Uh, Herman Bavink said, In the scriptures, God daily comes to his people, not from afar but nearby. In it, he reveals himself from day to day. To believers in the fullness of his grace and truth, through it he works his miracles of compassion and faithfulness, uh, scripture is the ongoing rapport between heaven and earth, between Christ and his church, between God and his children. It doesn't just tie us to the past. It binds us to the living Lord in the heavens. It is the living voice of God. And so that's how we approach scripture this morning. All of that to say the goal here is for all of us to hear what God has spoken to his church in scripture. And that's why our Bibles are open in front of us. 1 Peter chapter 4, I urge you to have the text in front of you. If you're like me, you've got a phone all the time, uh, our little idol that we carry around with us. And a lot of times that's how we look at the Bible. I encourage you to have the physical text in front of you. As I thought about where to go this morning, I, like Stephen said, I've kind of had a year to think about this. And as I thought about where, where do I want to go as we celebrate God's faithfulness, as we think over the past 30 years, where do we want to go uh, a passage, this passage has become for me, and I know for many of you as well, a passage which exemplifies a Christ-centered philosophy of ministry. And so I thought it appropriate to come back to these foundational gospel realities together as we celebrate uh, God's faithfulness and God's work. Uh, since, since the years we sat in these seats with you every week, these four instructions which Peter clarifies have been precious tools that God is continuing to use to shape and mature my heart, as well as tools he's given us to use for his glory and the good of those around us. And so I wanted to come back here. We're going to jump into the passage together. I'm going to read it, even though you've heard it lots of times. I'll briefly explain where we're going so nobody gets lost, and then we'll jump right into what it looks like when these gospel directives shape people and churches. So 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to look at verses 7 through 11. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks 
as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, here's the goal, here's the overarching umbrella, in everything that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And we as God's people say, amen. I love these verses. For a number of reasons. One is because they are simple and they're succinct and yet they're tremendously significant. So to help us see and to savor that significance, I want to do two main things. This is where we're going. This is my outline. First, I want to simply just take note of what the text says. Sometimes we mistake familiarity with really knowing. And so I want to just take note of what the text says Any good exploration of Scripture starts with observation. And so we're just going to simply kind of take inventory of what the text says, just sequentially and logically. And then I want to take the time to think about what it actually means, right? Because there's a difference between knowing what a text says and knowing what a text means. And this is definitely a text worth considering again deeply. So that's our plan in a nutshell. First, just look at what it says And then a few minutes considering the implications. We've read the passage, so we'll jump right into verse 7. And the first instruction is just to pray. Peter begins verse 7 with this plea for prayer. At the beginning of verse 7, he writes very conspicuously, the end of all things is at hand. I'm not a fiction reader. I don't know about you. I don't read fiction, but there's these awesome works of fiction. There's always, uh, in certain genres, there's this doom, kind of like, you know, Star Wars would be, be a good example, where the, the trilogies kind of starts and the words are scrolling up the screen. And there's this great, like, moment of, of plot, this beginning. And he kind of says, the end of all things is at hand. Over the last year and a half, I've heard eschatology mentioned quite a bit. So let's clarify what Peter means when he says the end of all things is at hand. I take that statement at the beginning of verse 7 to mean that Peter knows that with Jesus' birth and his death and his resurrection, the end of the ages has arrived. We see that kind of language in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. That is, the kingdom of God has come. Therefore, because Jesus' return is imminent, Peter says... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, essentially, Peter's argument in verse 7 is this. This is what he's saying. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. Even Jesus in Matthew 24 said that he didn't know when he would return. Only the Father knows that. All we know is that Jesus will return. This is a certainty. This is a joy that we get to celebrate and cling to. He will return. And when he returns, it will usher in the time when God will bring about the reconciliation of all things. When he returns, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of all the universe. And so be ready. In other words, don't meet Jesus on that day as a stranger. Call out to him in prayer before that day comes because he's listening. Take advantage of Jesus' offer of reconciliation and eternal life by trusting him as your Savior and intentionally developing a relationship with him through prayer. 
One of my favorite authors, John Piper, explained it simply. Be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you don't rely on spontaneity to bring you to prayer. Ian Bounds said wisely, Men must do God's work in God's way and to God's glory. And prayer is a necessity to its successful accomplishment. Intentional, planned, devoted prayer. That's what Peter's describing. He's prescribing. Because Jesus is coming back and he will reign as king of all the universe, whether we recognize his authority yet or not. And so the instruction is really clear. Just pray. In verse 8, Pastor Peter gives a second instruction, and this time he designates his plea in verse 8 as the most important, or the words he uses is, above all. And like this this is a pretty huge statement, right? There's a whole lot of things in the New Testament. Lots of them are important, and yet he says, above all, to love. And at first you're like, really, that's what's above all? But this is congruent, after all, with uh, Jesus' greatest commandments in Matthew 22. You know that passage as well, most likely. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and all your soul and your mind and your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. He says all the law, all the prophets hang on these two things. With Jesus' two greatest commandments in view, verse 8 reveals something really specifically relevant to September of 2021. Sometimes we've we kind of have a hard time bridging that cultural and, and chronological gap from, you know, A.D. 50 to 2021. But these things are, I think, specifically relevant, even especially maybe in the midst of COVID. Here's what I mean. Here's what above, loving above all means. It means that more important than preserving your individual rights more important than exercising your constitutional freedoms, more important than your political affiliations and affections, more important than your health and security, more important than your economic interests is the love that you have for the people that God has planted around you. And I say that based on that phrase, above all. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? That's because love covers over a multitude of sins. This is an exceedingly simple command. Here's what I've realized. This is an exceedingly simple command that we often demonstrate requires a lifetime of practice to love one another earnestly. I find this a fascinating instruction if you think about who's speaking here, right? This is the Apostle Peter. He's the brash, like uh, he would have been a Marine if he was an American, right? He's, he's all go, 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 take no gruff from anybody, right? Uh, he's the same guy who comes to Jesus in Matthew 18 with kind of this self-assured, kind of veiled pride. And he says, Lord, okay, he's putting on the holy front. We all do that, like the Christian facade, right? Lord, uh, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? That's the question. His, like, in his mind, holy response is, 
as many as seven times. Like, I'm going to show you how holy I am, Jesus. I'll do it not twice, three times, four times, seven times. And Jesus' response, of course, said to him, I don't say to you seven times. Peter's probably like, ah, that's right. I got him. He's going to say like five. And I overshot. He goes, no, 70 times. Seven. Jesus goes on in Matthew 18 to paint a really helpful word picture. I want to let Jesus' words paint the picture for me instead of my words because they're infinitely better. Here's the story Jesus tells. He tells a parable, a story with a moral, a story with a point. He's illustrating a spiritual reality. He says, therefore, Jesus is speaking, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king. So we have a king. And he's in control of all things, right, in his kingdom. And he wishes to settle his accounts with his servants, okay? So you see the, the authority and the position here. He's, he's got the money. He's loaned it to other people. Now he's saying it's time to settle up. He begins to settle up, and this one servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, like a lot of money. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold, and so we're... I mean, sold. This is a big deal, right? And not just him, with his wife and his children, everything that he had at his disposal to make this payment. And so the servant, in, in his desperation, he falls down on his knees before the king, and he's imploring him, he's begging him, he's urging him, he's beseeching him. Like, if there's anything you can do, he says, have patience with me, and I promise I'm going to pay you everything, and this king is good. He's compassionate. And so out of his pity for him, the master of that servant released him, and he forgave him his debt. He didn't just kind of push back the payment. Okay, I'll give you another six months, but if not, my Italian-sounding friends are going to break your knuckles. It wasn't that kind of thing, okay? My wife's family's Italian. I can say that, right? He forgives him his debt in verse 28. This is Matthew 18, 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred bucks. And he seized him and he begins to choke him. Give me the money, dude. So this fellow servant fell down. He pleads with him, have patience with me. I'll, I'll pay you. But this guy refused, and he went, and he put him in prison until he should pay his debt. And the story switches right there. It switches from the wicked servant to the other servants around them. And they are so distressed by this incongruency, this, this scene that's happening that's just not right, that they watch what's going on, and they go back to the king. They report to the master everything that's happened and so the master summons him and says you wicked servant i forgave you all of the debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as i have had mercy on you and in his anger the master delivers this wicked servant to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt jesus finishes the story and here's the moral so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Peter's instruction, above everything else, man, love. That's what earnest loves, love looks like. 
That's the instruction of 1 Peter 4.8. And, and if we have trouble finding motivation to forgive, that's why I asked Stephen to read that passage from Ephesians 4, because at the end, he gives us the foundation. If, if you're like me, if we're human, and you sometimes have motive, you find trouble uh, finding motivation to forgive, you're like, wait a second, I already extended them mercy, and they repaid me with evil. I, I don't know about that. They abused the kindness that I showed them. What, what then? What about when it begins to infringe on my rights? All we have to do is look to the cross, right? Because that's what Jesus did for each one of us. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgive one another. Yeah, I don't know. Why? Well, because... Jesus Christ forgave you. You've heard several times, no doubt, but Milton Milton Vincent expresses it this way in the Gospel Primer. Perhaps people are unkind when I try to help them, but I too have been spiteful to God when he sought to help me. Perhaps they are thankless and even abuse the kindness I show them. But how many times have I been thankless and used what God has given me to serve selfish ends? The gospel reminds me. This is why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. The gospel reminds me daily of the spiritual poverty into which I was born and also of the staggering generosity. Staggering, like, seriously? Generosity of Christ towards me. The gospel is our motivation And the gospel is our enabling energy to practice the kind of earnest, full-tilt love described in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter goes on to say in verse 9, you can follow along with me there, Daniel, with the outline. He says, show hospitality to one another. And then he qualifies the kind of hospitality he has in mind when he says... Without grumbling. One more slide. And to be honest, uh, it took me a while to figure this out because I'm kind of dense. I'm not exactly the brightest guy, uh, not the sharpest crayon. There's a difference here between hospitality and hospitality without grumbling. You see, we can act hospitable. And then after everybody leaves, you turn to your wife and you begin to complain about how all Joe wanted to talk about was cars and how annoying Sally's laugh was. It was this high-pitched, <laughs> just drive me nuts. And their kids ate all the ice cream and I was going to eat that later after dinner watching football. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. We, we can do hospitality with that kind of attitude. We can do that, and it might look nice on the surface because technically we did go through the motions of hospitality, but that's not biblical hospitality. That's American hospitality. That's not hospitality which springs from a heart that treasures the fact that Jesus died for us while we were still his enemies. While we were annoying and tiring and unpleasant at just the right time, Romans 5 says. Jesus died for us so that we might live. Biblical hospitality is distinctly gospel motivated and therefore with the gospel in view, recognizing all that Jesus has done for us, 
is keenly aware of the depths of Jesus' sacrifice and free from grumbling. This is how I like to express it. Hearts opened by the gospel often look like homes open because of the gospel. The last, moving into verse 10, the last instruction is to serve others. Peter goes on to describe several ways serving plays itself out, but the main instruction is in verse 10. You can go ahead there, Daniel. As each one received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The point of verse 10 is to serve others out of an awareness of the abundant grace God has lavished on us through Jesus. In other words, when I'm mindful of the gospel, that is when I'm intentional to remind myself of all that God has done for me and given me by grace in Jesus, I am more able to and more stimulated to serve others. You see, the gospel is unique in that it changes who and what we live for. It changes how we spend our time and money. It changes how we see the extra seat at the table, the extra bedroom, the extra stimulus check. The gospel invites us to leverage who we are and what we have to display the supremely valuable treasure that Jesus is. Supremely valuable treasure. Maybe you grew up in church and it was this like, well, yeah, yeah, that's just the language that you have. Let me tell you from a guy who thought he had it all figured out, who got exactly what he wanted at 19 years old, running the family business, company truck, the people under him, totally empty. Totally didn't feel like getting out of bed in the morning. Then I found a treasure worth pursuing. Supremely valuable treasure in Jesus. That's a brief overview of the instructions from 1 Peter 4. To love, to pray, to extend hospitality, to serve. However, my aim is not just to highlight information. That's, that's not what we're here for. What I really want to recognize is the natural implications so that we can apply the instructions so that, as verse 11 says, God is glorified as we put this into practice. So now that we have the information, we've run through the text, we know what the words say, I want to spend just a couple moments before we're done thinking through a few implications. These are some of the reasons why this matters or what it means. Things that have impacted my life in marriage and ministry most profoundly. So I want to share them to you, share them with you. Number one, you can just follow along with me, Daniel. There you go, you got it. Number one, what does this mean? It means that we prioritize prayer. Just simple and straightforward. The, the first implication is just to pray. One of my favorite professors, uh, when I was doing my undergrad, said, if you don't currently have a heart for prayer, the best thing you can do is pray about it. And I love that instruction. That's great advice. Now, you might ask why. Okay, yeah, yeah, I've been in church a lot. I know I, need to, I know I should pray to prioritize prayer. Why? Two reasons come to mind off just really quickly. One, and we saw this already, Jesus reigns and he is the supremely valuable treasure and he is where world history is going and he is what your life will revolve around after you die, whether you recognize it or not. And dude, I don't want you to miss out. Okay, that's why I want you to pray. That's why Peter wants you to pray, because Jesus is worth everything. 
Whether you see it yet or not, Jesus is worth everything. And so get to know him, right? If you knew you were going to have a new job next year and this guy was like, I don't know, the president of the United States or something, and you had no idea who he was, you would spend some time getting to know him. And if you had his email address or his phone number, you'd text him. You'd get to know him. So get to know him because he's worth everything. Secondly, this is a little more with an eye towards our context in 2021. Here's what I'm noticing about myself and the people around me, at least in my circles. I encourage you to prioritize prayer because we're more likely at this juncture to podcast than we are to pray. We spend more time looking for the next podcast, looking for the next thing that's interesting, looking for the next thing that I can do while I drive to work or while I run or while I fall asleep or whatever. And we don't prioritize prayer. And so let me just encourage you to do what ABC has been doing for years. What we did at 6 o'clock this morning, pray. Keep doing that. Another implication, the second one, is that love is paramount. We said a moment ago that the command of verse 8 is to love. But take take note of a couple of things about love from verse 8. One, love is paramount. That is, it's the most important. Uh, To use Jesus' words, it's the greatest command. And Peter echoes that sentiment here. And John uh, agrees in John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples If you download the Bible app and you read it like once a week, that's what John said. Right? Come on, people. No, of course that's not what he said. He says, they're going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. Also notice the biblical, that biblical love is earnest or sincere or authentic. In the original language, it's intensely stretched out to the full extent. That's the word. Like if you took a rubber band and you just pulled it as far as it would go before it broke. That kind of earnest, full tilt love. Not a self-absorbed, what will it benefit me kind of love, but a deep, abiding, selfless love. The kind of love ascribed to Jesus and required of his followers at the beginning of Philippians 2. I'm trying to memorize this again. I've memorized it before. I'm trying to get my kids to memorize this, or I've been wanting to. I feel like I can't make them memorize it until I've got it down again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself, more significant. Let, let each of you not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus love. Verse 8 also reminds us that love covers a multitude of sins. You saw lots of pictures of construction a few minutes ago when Ed was showing those. There was some sheetrock being done. And when you're sheetrocking, you cover over all the imperfections, right? You, you smooth the mud over, and that's what he's saying. This is the, that's what love does. It covers over those things that you could just stand and complain about, but you're not. Love is so significant in the life of the Christian that Jesus says the defining mark of his followers will be the depth of their love for one another. 
In 1 John 3, he says, we know that we've passed out of death into life, like the most important transaction that can ever happen in the history of the universe. Here's how you know it's happened, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It tells me that love is paramount. Not optional, not secondary, not whenever we get time for it, paramount. Another implication is grumble-free hospitality. Verse 9 admonishes us to extend hospitality to, uh, to others and to do it without grumbling. But grumble-free hospitality is in part impossible, I think, apart from the gospel because the gospel generates true heart transformation. Maybe you're right. Joe does talk a lot about cars. And yeah, you're right. Sally's laugh is kind of annoying. And yeah, all the ice cream's gone. But in the scope of eternity, does it matter? Do those kinds of trivial things matter enough to set aside the commands of Scripture? Is inconvenience or new carpet or a football game on TV a good enough reason to ignore the commands of a Savior who died to give us life? Set against the backdrop of the gospel where our sin nailed Jesus to the cross. The things that we have such a tendency, I know this because I do it more often than you. The things we have such a tendency to complain about are embarrassingly small. Several years ago, I was sitting on an old army cot. Staring at a West African sunset through a mosquito net, and I was reading this passage in 1 Peter 4. It was one of those things that your pastor tells you not to do, but I did it anyway. You just open the Bible, see where it goes. And uh, anyway, we came to here. And at that moment, in the middle of a village that was 40 kilometers from the nearest road, in a village where the nearest well was a mile and a half away, in a country where two meals a day makes you upper middle class. In a country where one in four children die before their fifth birthday from, from preventable waterborne illnesses like diarrhea. At that moment, I realized for the very first time that biblical hospitality isn't really about food or clean houses or fancy place settings. Biblical hospitality isn't really about food, it's about relationships. Relationships that help other people see that Jesus is worth all that you have. That thing that you've been saying, when I retire, I'm going to finally, he's worth more than that. I, I, he is. And if that happens for you, if, if hospitality happens for you over a nice meal, then rejoice, you're rich, you're likely in the, in the top 2% of wage earners globally. But hospitality isn't mainly about food, it's mainly about exalting Christ and teaching others to do the same thing by opening your home and showing them a life, an ordinary, everyday life that's been profoundly and unalterably transformed by the unfathomable generosity of God. We're starting to, at our church, define hospitality with just this super simple phrase. Hospitality is ordinary things, doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. When you invite people into your house, 
cause them to praise, uh, to leave praising Jesus and not your apple pie. Because when they get to heaven, they're not going to need to say, man, Sally's apple pie was great and that's why I'm here. That's not going to work. Okay? The goal should be showing people an extraordinary Savior. The last implication, I'll close with this. Last implication of 1 Peter 4 is praying and loving and extending hospitality is ultimately about a much greater invitation. When Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house for dinner in Luke 19, when Jesus ate dinner with many tax collectors and sinners in Matthew 9, in Mark 14, when he sat with the disciples in the upper room and he served them dinner and then he broke bread and passed around the cup, Jesus was using hospitality as a means to a much greater end. To Jesus, hospitality pictured a far greater invitation than the people around those tables could ever see. Especially in the first century, where there's no Motel 6s or Chick-fil-A drive through Sorry, Ken. Hospitality was an expression that said, I won't hurt you. I will care for you. You can trust me. I've got your back. And nowhere is that expression of friendship and love more evident than on the cross. Jesus' willing death on the cross was the ultimate act of love and compassion, an act that our hospitality pictures when we extend that same kind of love and gospel-generated grace to others. So these four distinctives of faithful disciples, prayer and love and hospitality and serving, you've heard them before, you'll hear them again by God's grace We've seen these, we know these, and yet these are an invitation to look back at what has been done for us, and they cause us to look forward to the promises that await us in Christ, that day when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, because Jesus will be visibly reigning, and we will get get to be seated around God's banquet table, reclining and rejoicing, Revelation 19 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage uh, of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as I close, my encouragement is simply to say, keep doing what you've done for 30 years. Continue to pursue. Continue to preach. Continue to invest in praying and loving people and leveraging the extra bedroom and serving in the way that God's gifted you. And do it all for the glory of Jesus and the joy of his people. Let's pray. God, thank you for these years of your faithfulness to us. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to be faithful to you by grace. Lord, you are so good. You are so great. You are so awesome. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that splendor. We love you and thank you. Thank you for these moments together. Pray that your word would accomplish what only your word can. In Jesus' name.